How many of you have been through therapy before? Now, I realize that's a pretty vulnerable question, so it seems odd to kick things off that way. But I have a, a couple different times in my life. I love it. Well, there's for sure moments I hate it because it forces me to sit with and work through my stuff. But I think everyone should go through therapy and not just in the seasons when life feels like it's falling apart. And if you've ever been through therapy, you know one of the first things you talk about is your family of origin. You may even do something called a genogram where you map out your family tree and you talk about things like how present your parents were in your life, your relationship with them, what your mom or your dad was like, what kind of childhood you had, what socioeconomic background you come from, whether or not you had siblings, and if so, are you the oldest, youngest, a middle kid like me? You talk about all that kind of stuff. But why? Why is it important to work through and rehash all of that in counseling? Well, the reason is because there is something really important, really significant about going back in order to go forward. We unpack our family of origin because we realize that the present is actually significantly shaped by the past. Who I am, how I relate to God, to other people, how I think and feel, how I see life and the world around me is shaped by where I come from and those who have gone before me. And although this is a, a common thought in the counseling world today, it's not a new thought to the human experience. It's something that people and cultures have practiced for centuries. Grab your Bible or open your device and find Matthew chapter 1. You see, we are closing in on Christmas now. And in less than one week, we'll celebrate the birth of Jesus together, the arrival of Emmanuel, God with us. But before we get there, Matthew's going to help us look backwards in order to go forward. He's going to take us on a journey through the past so that we might better be able to understand the present. So let's start reading. Look at Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. Matthew writes, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, let's pause there because the word that is translated as genealogy is actually the Greek word genesis. And it's where we get our English word genesis. It means origin. And so this verse, it could also be read as this is the origin of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What Matthew is telling us is that we're about to read Jesus's origin story, what a new hope is to the Star Wars saga. It's what the Sorcerer's Stone is to Harry Potter. And Matthew tells us Jesus's origin story, not just to give us like background details, like, oh yeah, he was Jewish, his dad was Joseph, his mom was Mary, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. No, just as we don't unpack our family of origin in therapy just for the sake of sharing fun facts with our counselor, no, Matthew tells us Jesus' origin story so we can better understand who Jesus is, why he came to earth, and who we are as a result. So keep that in mind. 
because now we get to the actual genealogy. Wah, 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 right? Like 15 straight verses of names that are really challenging to pronounce. And if you're like me, it's tempting to skim through this part quickly. But we're going to read it. So stick with me. Let's pick back up in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. If you're like expecting a baby and you're not sure on the name, that might be a good one to go with. I bet they won't have anyone in their class that's named the same name. Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, who was mo- whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Are you still with me? Okay, good. Let's keep going. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Are you still alive? Okay, stick with me. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shetil, Shetil the father of Zerubbabel, another good name for the baby name list. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and here we go, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. We made it. Congratulations. You should be very proud of yourself. Now, how many of you read that and thought to yourself, who cares? (laughs) Right? Like, why is that important? Why is that even there? What is, what like a boring and archaic way to start off the New Testament, right? Like, no wonder people start their Bible reading plan and then get off track right away. Well, here's what's important to understand. You see, in an ancient communal culture like Israel, tracing your family tree was a vital part of one's identity. Now, that's a pretty foreign concept for most of us who were born and raised in America because we're accustomed to an individualistic culture, not a communal or tribal-based one. I mean, I could tell you that I am part Irish, English, German, and French. I know that. I got that confirmed when I did the 23andMe. I could tell you that my maiden name, Renaud, is a popular uh, French surname, um, although we don't say it as beautifully as the French do. That is the American Midwest butchering of that name. Uh, I could tell you that my grandma, whose maiden name is Hudson, is a descendant of the English explorer Henry Hudson. Uh, If you have been to New York at all, you've probably heard a little bit more about him. 
I could also, like, I could tell you these fun facts about my family origin. I could probably even trace my family tree back a couple generations, but that's about it. It's definitely not a core part of my identity as a person. But you see, in much of the ancient world and even in other cultures around the world today, tracing your family tree was a core part of who you were. You're the son of somebody, the daughter of somebody, and, and that person is the son of somebody and the son of somebody. Your family line, your genealogy, it was sort of like your resume. It could make you or break you. It was of the utmost importance. And so if you were a first century Jew listening to this being read, you would have been on the edge of your seat. This wouldn't have been a boring list of names you can't pronounce. No, but this would have been one of the most important parts of the story. And you see, at a surface level, this is a normal genealogy. And Matthew's simply making the point that Jesus, this peasant rabbi from the obscure village of Nazareth in the north of Israel, is in fact the Messiah. And so Matthew does that by tracing the royal bloodline from King David all the way down to Joseph, all to make the point that Jesus is in fact of royal blood and therefore he's a qualified candidate for Messiah. Pretty straightforward. But under the service, this is not a normal genealogy at all. First, that's not even the word for genealogy, the Greek word for genealogy. It's the word for Genesis, the book of Genesis. Matthew, from the very beginning, is setting up his book by calling back to the first creation story, humanity's first origin story, and saying, here's the new creation, the new origin that is coming through Jesus the Messiah. But then after that, there's all sorts of interesting things going on here. And I want to pour out, point out three of them with the rest of our time together today. Now, just to prepare you, I'm going to nerd out on you for about 10 to 12 minutes. Some of you love this and you're pumped right now. Others of you, you don't love it so much. And if that's you, I'm sorry. It's totally okay. No judgment for me, but I'm going to ask you to stick with me because I'll bring it all back together in the end. I promise. Okay. You ready? The first thing to note is that Matthew has made a few subtle changes to two names in the genealogy. And it actually gets lost in translation from Greek to English. So it's really easy for us to miss. If you have the NIV translation of the Bible like I do, you don't even get a footnote that references this. But if you read a couple different translations like the ESV, there is a footnote after the name Asa in verse 8 and Amon in verse 10. You see, Asa and Amon were two really well-known wicked like evil kings of Israel, both not good dudes. But in the original Greek, you don't actually read Asa and Amon in these verses. They're in the correct spot of the genealogy, but Matthew's changed the names slightly. You see, first, he added one Greek letter to turn the name Asa into Asaph. Anyone recognize that name? Asaph was a worship leader at the temple in ancient Israel and is one of the main writers, along with King David, of the book of Psalms. And Asaph's Psalms prophesy a ton about the coming Messiah. Secondly, Matthew swapped out the last letter in the name Amon and changed it to read Amos. Anyone recognize that name? 
Amos was a Hebrew prophet who was all about social justice and, and who also prophesied a lot about the coming Messiah. Now, Matthew was a way smarter guy than you and I. This was not done by accident. This isn't a clumsy scribal error. No, this is intentional, which is why it's ironic that some of the modern English translations have missed this like pun altogether and they changed the names back to Asa and Amen. You see, Matthew's winking at his audience here, knowing that any first century Jew would notice these out of place names. The point Matthew is making with these subtle changes is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the Psalms, Asaph, and all the hopes of the prophets, Amos, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He's the one the prophecies have been pointing to all along. Okay, here's the second thing that we can draw out from the genealogy is that Matthew includes women in it. Now, that might not seem surprising to us, but back then that was not normal at all. First century Israel was a patriarchal society. Women rarely made an appearance in genealogies, especially one of someone from a royal bloodline. But there's not just one, but four women in this list. And what's even more intriguing here is not the fact that women are included, but which women are included. You see, there are four matriarchs in the Jewish tradition. Sarah, who was the wife of Abraham, Rebecca, the wife of Isaac, and Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob. Those three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founding fathers of Israel, and their wives are called the mothers of Israel. And in Jewish culture, from the first century all the way to present day, these four women are center stage. But these are not the four women who Matthew includes in this genealogy he gives of Jesus. Instead, he includes Tamar, a Canaanite woman, a.k.a. not Jewish, who we read about in Genesis 38. You see, her husband died, and when her father-in-law, a guy named Judah, refused to give her his younger son in marriage, as was the custom of the day, she dressed up like a prostitute on the side of the road and seduced her father-in-law in order to get pregnant so that he would have to marry her and her safety and security in life wouldn't be ruined by the fact that she no longer had a husband. Definitely not a G-rated story. Rahab, also a Canaanite. Also, she was a sex worker from the city of Jericho. Then there's Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. The Moabites, if you read the book of Genesis, were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. Horrific. And therefore, they were a people who were hated by Jews and Gentiles alike in the Near East. Then finally is the wife of Uriah, also known as Bathsheba. She, as far as we know, was a Jew, although we don't know that for sure, but her husband was not. Uriah was a Hittite. And as the story goes, Bathsheba was seduced by King David, got pregnant. David tries to cover it up by having her husband killed and then marrying her himself. And the end result is disaster. There's death. There's civil war. It was a wreck. You see, instead of listing the four matriarchs of Israel, Matthew includes four women who were complete outsiders. Four women who are all associated with sexual scandal. I mean, this would have been utterly shocking. 
Four women who have messy and broken stories that are a far cry from the pristine examples we might expect from people included in the royal bloodline of the Messiah. Matthew wants his readers to clearly see that God has been at work all along, using all types of people to move his rescue plan for humanity forward in the world. Matthew wants to make it crystal clear that God at his very core is an inclusive God who moves towards the rejects, towards the outsiders, towards the broken, and brings them into his family. One of the most important truths that we could take away from this genealogy is that Jesus can use anybody and anything in his story. I mean, he used Jacob, a liar, Rahab, a sex worker, Ruth, an outsider, David, who struggled with mental health, Asa, a wicked king, and on and on and on. Like, we could unpack each person in this genealogy. Not only can he use anybody, but he can use anything. I mean, there are all sorts of bad things that happen right here in this list of names. Adultery, murder, civil war, slavery, generational poverty, all of this is evil. But somehow God found a way of turning that evil on its head, of using it for good, using it for his good purposes, because that's what God does. God can use anything, particularly our wounding. You know, oftentimes we think it's only our successes and our strengths that God can use. But we have to remember, he was a crucified Messiah, right? It's, it's our wounding, our deficiencies, even our failures that God can use more than anything if we just open up our life, the good, the bad, the ugly, to Jesus. If you are someone who feels too unworthy, too broken, too lost, too lonely, too filled with doubts, too riddled with anxiety, too unqualified, too overlooked, too prone to mistakes, too whatever it may be. Know that you are exactly who Jesus once included in his story. Okay, let's get back to the genealogy. You see, there's one more thing I want us to look at today, and that is this emphasis on the 14 generations. Did you notice that as we read through the passage, especially in verse 17? Matthew breaks up the genealogy into three sections of 14 generations. But why 14? Well, within the written language of Hebrew, the letters also double as the numbers. So each letter is assigned a numeric value. It would be like in the English alphabet if the letter A also doubled for the number one and the letter B for the number two and so on. You get the idea. And in Hebrew, King David's name is made up of three Hebrew letters. Uh, Delet, which has a numerical value of four. Then Vav, which has a numerical value of six. Then Delet again for another four. So four plus six plus four equals, you got it, 14. 
So 14 was a symbolic number for King David, and everyone would have known that and, and recognized the nod that Matthew is giving to David through the use of the number 14. It'd be just like if you were watching the Warriors game with a bunch of diehard fans and someone starts talking about number 30, right? Everyone there is going to know they're referring to Steph Curry. And Matthew wants to highlight this 14 equals David idea so much that he intentionally leaves out multiple generations of the line of David in order to make the numbers work. Now I know you're thinking, wait a minute, Matthew's taken people out of the genealogy? Yes. But before we label this as fake news, it's important to realize this wouldn't have been a scandalous thing to do back then. Leaving out generations in order to create symbolic numbers in genealogies was a common Hebrew literary practice. You see, the goal of ancient genealogies wasn't simply to record history, but to make theological claims. So Matthew is making it crystal clear in explicit ways and in the literary design of the list itself that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that he's the son of David. Okay, but it gets even better. Around this time, there was a well-known prophecy from the book of Daniel that said the exile that the people of Israel would, were in would last for 77s or 77-year time periods or 490 years. Now, this number seven, it comes up again and again and again in scripture. Every seven days was a Sabbath day. Every seven years was a Sabbath year. Every seven times seven years, or every 49 years, was what was called a jubilee year, which was a fascinating, like socioeconomic, even a political innovation in ancient Israel, where during the year of jubilee, all debts would be remitted. Slaves would be freed. Land and property would be returned to the original owner. It was this like beautiful time of social justice, of equal economic opportunity, a, a way to break the chains of generational poverty, a time when all could start fresh again and everyone and everything could experience peace and rest. And you see in Daniel, when we read about the 77s, He's referring to a time far, far off on the horizon when the Messiah would come and usher in the jubilee of all jubilees, an unprecedented time of peace and prosperity and social justice and the healing of the world. And so what Matthew does in a brilliant way is factor in that well-known prophecy from Daniel through the lens of generations, right? He provides three groupings of 14 generations making six sets of seven, which then makes the birth of Jesus the launch of the seventh seven. How cool is that? I mean, you see that Matthew is saying the long-awaited jubilee of all jubilees is finally here in and through Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David. He's the one the psalmist sang about. He's the one the prophets prophesied about. He is the climax of all that God has promised to Israel and as a result, all that God has promised to the whole world. And little did you know that 17 verses of names you can't pronounce communicate so much. But you see, this is why Matthew's first century Jewish listeners, they wouldn't have just skipped through these boring verses because Matthew was so beautifully, so brilliantly communicating to them that Jesus' story is what they've been waiting for all this time.
Jesus's story was their story. And that's the second truth that we can take away from this genealogy for us today, that Jesus's story is our story. Jesus is the Messiah, the climax to the story of Israel and to humanity itself. And when we choose to follow Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God. I mean, just read through the New Testament. It says over and over and over again that we become children of God. His story becomes our story. His work becomes our work. His mission of ushering in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, his mission of redeeming and restoring the brokenness around us and the brokenness within us, it becomes our mission. We join Jesus' story. The problem is, we often think it's the other way around, right? We like the idea of Jesus. We like the peace he can bring us, the hope he can bring us, the comfort he can bring us. But when it comes down to it, we'd rather have him join our story instead of us joining his. We want Jesus to fit into our life, our plans, our politics, our thinking, our desires, our own definitions of what the good life is. We want Jesus to fit into our pursuit of money or possessions or pleasures or comfort or security. We want to still be the ones in, the, in control of telling the story of our own lives. But church, we have to remember that our job isn't to drag Jesus into our story, but to drag ourselves into his. Our job isn't to drag Jesus into our story, but to drag ourselves into his. What might it look like for us as we head into this final week before Christmas to put ourselves into Jesus' story instead of just squeezing him into ours? Maybe spend some time thinking about that, praying about that today. It might look like inviting the outsider, the lonely, the hurting into your home, into whatever gatherings you will be part of this week. It might look like moving slowly enough through your day to notice the brokenness around you and being open to how God might want to use you to offer hope, peace, restoration in that moment to that person. It might mean moving slowly enough to notice the brokenness within you and being open to how Emmanuel, the God who is present with us, might want to bring healing into that space. You see, the beauty of this genealogy that Matthew gives us is that it's not just a list of names. It's not even just an origin story but it's an invitation. It's an invitation to join Jesus and the work that he is doing in this world, an invitation to partner with Jesus as he ushers in this jubilee of all jubilees marked by peace and healing and restoration. It's an invitation to join Jesus 
as he takes anything and anybody, including you and me, and weaves it into the beautiful mosaic that is the story of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now so grateful for who you are, that you are a loving God, a present God, an inclusive God, who looked at your humanity, your creation with love and compassion, and who has been working for centuries in ways seen and ways unseen to fulfill your rescue plan for this world. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what we get to celebrate on Christmas, but all year through that he came to us in the flesh to be present with us, but that it didn't stop there. That with Jesus came the, uh, the, the start, the beginning of this jubilee of jubilees, the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven, and that he invites us to be a part of the peace and the restoration and the healing that he's doing. God, may you give us eyes to see and hearts to respond to the brokenness, the hurt, the rejection, the pain that we see around us and we see within us and that we would be a people who follow Jesus in this restorative work he's doing, and that we would be a part of bringing your kingdom come. It's in the mighty name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Wait, wait, before you go, three things. First, please consider becoming one of Cornerstone Fellowship's financial partners. Your donations will ensure that you'll be able to continue enjoying helpful and hopefully life-changing messages like the one you just watched. And number two, please share the link to this message with anyone who you know needs it or will be blessed by it or post the link to your own personal social platforms. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted whenever we post more content. Thanks for watching.